Hello, I'm Angelina. And I'm Martin. And this is the CX Cast. Today, David Trogue, VP Principal Analyst on the CX Research team here at Forrester, is back and He's been looking into generative AI, which is good because a lot of us are still a little hesitant to dip our toes into that huge ocean of questions. David, how's it going? Going great. How about you? I'm doing great, and I'm ready to hear about the hype. Are we overhyping generative AI, or is it just the right amount of hype right now? <laughs> I think some people are overhyping it, and some people are underhyping it. So it's really uh, a spread. If you compare it to the metaverse last year and the amount of hype that was flying around then, is, it, is that a fair comparison? Is it going to crumble and disappear or is it here to stay? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, the metaverse hype crumbled and disappeared. The metaverse itself hasn't and won't. Uh, and I think the same thing with generative AI. Right now, there's probably too much hype from some quarters, just like there was about the metaverse. And it'll be followed by some skepticism. And there's a lot of skepticism now, in fact, just like there was also about the metaverse. But I think that generative AI has a more obvious near-term application. And also, people can try it here and now. All the things that resembled what the metaverse eventually will be were less accessible to folks than generative AI is. So right now, anyone, anywhere can just go into a web browser and try ChatGPT, for example, or DALI. Whereas experiencing virtual reality, which is one aspect of what will become the metaverse, is just a lot harder. Most people don't have access to the devices. The onboarding is more complex. So, you know, the metaverse just has a lot of obstacles to it that gender of AI does not in terms of the initial experience of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I had a go of two or three of the platforms. I found ChatGPT was like incredibly easy to use. Uh, Mid-journey, I think, demanded that you create a Discord account and get insulted by a bunch of 16-year-old gamers. So that felt a bit different. Right, yes. <laughs> but So like, where where's the state of kind of the interfaces and the accessibility? Because I think our data says that not many people, not many online adults have actually used an AI platform to create anything. Well, I think, you know, I think it's useful to take a step back and say, you know, what 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 is it exactly? What is generative AI? What are we talking about? And fundamentally, you know, it's a set of technologies and techniques for discovering patterns in content. That's it, boiled down to the simplest, that's what it is. It's for discovering patterns in content, but patterns that are so deep and so detailed that you can then generate new content that's similar based on those patterns. So when I say patterns in content, you know that content can be documents or code or captioned images or anything that can be digitized. And it has to be a lot, a large volume of content. And you know AI researchers call this the corpus that collection of content. And what it means to discover patterns is to create a statistical model that's so accurate that if you give it a new chunk of content, it can predict what should come next. In other words, you know, what probably would have come next if what you had typed had been in the original sample. So it's kind of a supercharged autocomplete, um, but it's, it's so supercharged that its powers just have been really surprising to everyone, including the AI researchers who were creating it. I think there's, I mean, there's a, there's a whole other stream of podcasts in like the privacy risks, the technology risks, et cetera, how it works. But we concentrate on the kind of philosophically, what is it and what is it doing here? I think it does make sense. And it's, it's kind of fascinating black boxing because it's not like code that you can read and work out why it's doing it. It's actually learning based on the data you feed it. 
That's right. That's right. And because it's finding patterns, just statistical patterns, you know, there's this problem that's often brought up of explainability that like, well, if gender AI arrives at a conclusion and recommends something like, uh, you know, this is the procedure that a surgeon should use in cardiac surgery, or this is the next track you should listen to on Spotify, obviously two things of very different levels of gravity and impact, that the algorithm should be able to justify itself to explain why it's recommending this procedure or recommending this track. But the truth is, with generative AI, because it's based on neural networks, there's very, very little success at all right now in explaining, in being able to justify how it arrived at that conclusion. And, you know, I think there's a very uh, valid comparison to the way humans think and operate, which is, you know, the brain, the structure of the brain is the inspiration for neural networks and the way generative AI functions. And so it should be no surprise that, you know, we humans arrive at conclusions about which we use words like intuitive or, well, I had a gut feeling. But in fact, there's lots of computation going on in our brains that we're just not aware of, right? And it really resembles what is going on in neural networks. And so I'm very uh, skeptical right now, and I'd say not optimistic about the explainability efforts. There are efforts to try to make these things uh, uh, more explainable, but it's very, very early days, and I'm not seeing a lot of signs of success so far. We have a lot of tools that we use to complete tasks, and some of them are to ideate, to go wide in our thinking, to feel inspired, and then others are, we've come up with a solution and now we need a tool to make the work happen. Which side of things is generative AI on? Is it on the get inspiration, go broad side, or is it the come up with the solution, let's say for the customer, and then see if generative AI is part of that solution? Um, I would say it really can be both. I mean, there are, there are situations where generative AI can be very helpful for stimulating creativity, helping people get over the blank page problem, you know, staring at a blank page and, you know, generating ideas, for example, using it as kind of a collaborator to spark creativity. At the same time, you can't just trust whatever it says because it is, you know, generating likely completions of whatever you used as an input. And those likely completions are based on, you know, what was in the corpus, what it was trained on, which probably includes material that is incorrect and contradictions. At least that's true for ChatGPT because it's trained on the web, right? Which is content from a bunch of humans who contradict each other and sometimes say things that are wrong or some things that are full of rage and other times say things that are brilliant and insightful. Right. It's a mix of all of that. Are you so, saying everything on Wikipedia is not true? Uh, apparently, yes. <laughs> and on the web, in fact. And Wikipedia changes from day to day, doesn't it? So, so this, this, and, this and kind of unpicks even better, a, right? This, well, oh, I'm not no. this unpicks a really interesting question, which I've been wondering about for a while, and I've seen very little research on, which is the, the relationship between trust and AI, and in particular, trust of machine-generated content. So we kind of live in a world now where literally you could look at a picture and not be sure. I know there are ways that in which you can you can work it out, but you could, as a, as a casual observer, you could not be sure whether that is genuinely a picture of was it the Pope in a puffer jacket or something? Right. Yes. And yeah. you're kind of left going like, is that real? Is that not? And and that probably wasn't okay. But then we get this kind of point where you're chatting to a chatbot, and often it's transparent and it's very transparent where they pass you from the chatbot to an agent because the chat suddenly gets more intelligent. But do we know anymore? Like this, this bot is calling itself Jenny. Is it really Jenny or is it a robot pretending to be Jenny? Does that matter to consumers? What, how should we approach that? Uh, yes, that definitely matters. And we have always advocated and continue to advocate for never, never deceiving 
customers or employees for that matter. Um, it's fine and good to use automation, including bots like this, but they should always be transparent about the fact that they are bots and never pretend to be human. There are, though, I would say different kinds of trust required, and I think we're going through some real growing pains about that right now because, you know, this explainability problem that I mentioned a few minutes ago, if you know that the bot probably cannot explain itself, how it arrived at a certain conclusion, then you kind of have to decide whether you trust it or not. And some people feel that that's impossible and something we just can't do. The AI must be able to explain itself. But if you think about it, it's very interesting to compare that to human employees because we hire humans all the time that we just trust. We ask people to take on certain responsibilities and make decisions, and we don't supervise and examine every single decision they make. We trust that they're doing the right thing until something goes wrong and then maybe they get fired or until something goes really right and maybe then they get promoted. But when we first hire them, it's based on track record, recommendations, a gut feeling, etc. And I think we're going to see very similar uh, behaviors towards AIs, uh, which will be applied to delivering customer experiences, but in ways that are going to require that we trust them like we trust human employees. And we're, I'd say, far from that now, and for good reason. But eventually, I think that's where we're going to be headed. And are there um, actual applications you're seeing in CX, you know, for people who are focused on the customer with generative AI, with that responsibility in mind? Yes, absolutely. And all the applications now that we are recommending are applications that are not directly facing the end customer, but that are assisting CX professionals or people whose job responsibilities include delivering those experiences to customers. So first of all, one of the important ones is in designing digital interactions. So not the delivery, but the design of those digital interactions. And you know, most people know that tools like Stable Diffusion and Adobe Firefly can help you produce images quickly if you describe what you have in mind. Uh, Martin, you mentioned a couple of those tools. But you know, making images is just, is just visual design, and that's just the tip of the iceberg compared to what the rest of design is about. Where it really gets interesting is, you know, generative AI uh, is going to help with prototyping interaction flows, really in any medium. It's happening today with chatbots because, you know, a flow of a chatbot uh, is something that is described in a, in a file, just like a Word file or an Excel file or a PowerPoint file or a file containing code. And if you have a large enough volume of those, you can similarly train a model and generate new ones that resemble it. Or if you have captioned content, meaning you know descriptions of uh, chatbot flows or other interaction flows that have metadata, that have descriptions of what they do, what their purpose is, then similarly you can generate new ones with a prompt. Let me to give a concrete example. You know, right now if you're using Figma for designing interactions, those interactions are stored in files somewhere. I've actually reached out to some folks at Figma asking, so are there a bunch of them that are out there that could be used to train a model? And their response has been that for now, they have not published the format of those files. There's an API for looking at them, but uh, they haven't published the format. On the other hand, they all exist in the cloud. So I would predict that Figma and companies like them are going to be able to exploit that large volume of interaction flows that are designed by millions of users around the world to allow generative AI to create new interaction flows and to really enable those designers and other CX professionals to make use of the tools that, that will help them design will be, you know, there'll be co-designers with them that will be assistive in helping them design. 
you know, so that's one area that I am paying particular attention to. There are some other areas that I can talk a little bit about. One of them that my colleague Brennan Purcell is focusing on a lot is creating synthetic data, which is uh, data that mimics or extrapolates from the real world, but isn't directly traceable to it, which is important. For example, scenarios where you don't have real world data or it's very strictly regulated. Um, maybe it would be, you know, you can't include personally identifiable information. And so gender AI can help you create synthetic data in those situations. So for testing or that kind of purpose? Uh, yes, yeah, for example, yeah. Our colleague Colleen Fazio, who focuses on customer feedback, voice of the customer, has pointed out how it can be used to summarize uh, customer feedback more effectively. That can be super useful, right? When you have a very large volume of customer feedback and you can get rapid insights into it using the uh, the ability generative AI has to to summarize content. I think when Another you talk about the design today, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah when ahead, you sorry. connect what you talked about with the ability to kind of mock up workflows, ingest huge amounts of volumes of whether it's a website workflow, a journey map, a chatbot, and then connect that into real data about how people use that experience, whether they, whether they complete successfully, whether they abandon, whether they drop out. That feels like it has an interesting potential to go down an optimization route for, for websites, for apps, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because you could essentially be generating many different possible interaction flows in a way that would be hard to scale if humans had to design them all individually and then do um, essentially A-B testing on all of them and continuous optimization. At a massive scale. So yes, it's a little bit like, to refer back to you know the uh, research on journey orchestration that our colleague Joanna de Quintanilla does, um, that's the kind of thing where you could do dynamic journey orchestration based on generating many, 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 many different flows and uh, doing real-time comparison of how they perform, absolutely. It's, it's that ability to create, I think, is what's really inspiring about this because we've, you know, we've been able to run machine intelligence or analytics over big data sets for a long time and generate next best experience, next best action. But yes. for it to then say, this is what it should look like, this is the flow that you should take, is, is fascinating. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And what it means is that you know, because some of that burden of generating many possibilities is taken off the shoulders of humans, it doesn't mean that humans aren't relevant anymore. On the contrary, what it means is that they can be adding value at a higher level, that they can be applying their judgment and critical thinking in addition to the measurement that we were just talking a moment ago to making those selections. So in some ways, I think that, you know, we've all heard the cliche of, you know, be a creator, not a critic. I think generative AI points out that to be a real creator, you also need to be a critic in the sense of applying critical thinking and judgment and discrimination between the good idea and the less good idea that the gender of AI is producing. In other words, you don't just say, hey, gender of AI, do my job for me and I'm going to go sit on the beach. That doesn't work. Humans need to be involved um, as the final arbiters of which is the good idea, which is the best next best action, uh, what is the best interaction flow or chatbot flow that has been designed. Or, you know, another example is in the contact center, um, which my colleagues, uh, our colleagues, Max Ball and Christina McAllister focus on a lot. You know, one of the applications is in summarizing a call, you know, generating a, a post-call summary, essentially, which is a kind of a tedious thing that contact center folks have to do, or generating email replies. But it's important to recognize there that really humans should be reviewing those and making sure that they're accurate. Yeah. And this is continuing that theme of we aren't creating less work. We're producing better work and creating more possibilities in the work. Yes, exactly. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. And this, I think this is an interesting tension I've seen. So I've got a couple of friends who work in kind of gaming and art direction, and they land on different sides of this debate that it's evil, it's going to steal our jobs versus it's a tool, same as paint or whatever. Paint, nobody probably uses paint anymore because how sophisticated I am at digital art. <laughs> but it's, you know, this, this debate probably happened when spinning wheels and tractors and whatever were invented in the industrial revolution but this feels different because this is like this is invading our space of creativity rather than it's just it's a thing that makes nails faster yes now that's true and i think that you know to some extent it's true that there are always new developments in every field and every discipline and you know, there was, uh, to, to pick up on the paint uh, thing, Martin, you know, there was a time when any self-respecting... I am self-respecting, the cutting edge, don't okay. There you go. Well, well, there was a time, right, when every, any self-respecting painter, you know, mixed their own paints from linseed oil and pigments. And, right. And then, you know, somebody had the idea of putting it in a tube um, instead of having And, and to, all those fakes went and bought it from the shop. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so I'm sure some, some artists said, well, you're not a real artist unless you mix <laughs> your own with linseed oil and store it in a pig bladder and, you know, it's stable. <laughs> and that sort of disappeared right um and i think we'll we'll see something similar here now that's not to say there aren't issues i recently uh, wrote a blog post about uh, adobe firefly which is interesting because it's essentially similar to dali and stable diffusion in the sense that you can generate an image from a prompt you type something and it generates an image or actually a set of images but it does a few things that are very different that i think really matter to uh to artists which are for example that it's trained on images that are legal to use and high quality, whereas the other contenders in this space are kind of in trouble for that. So, for example, Stable Diffusion is in a lawsuit. They're being sued by Getty for using millions of images without permission. You know, Adobe with Firefly is also taking care of thinking about how do the creators of these images get paid or protected, either either paid if their images are used or protected from being used at all if they prefer it that way. They're also building in normalization away from unwanted biases. So if you say you want uh, an image with uh, doctors and nurses for some marketing campaign you're doing or something on your website, well, historically, photos of doctors were men and photos of nurses were women. Is that the way we believe the world should be? No, but it is the way the world has been. And that's what we need to do with a corpus that's used for training is do some normalization of what the model then produces. Because the AI isn't being bad. The AI isn't being sexist. The AI is just holding up a mirror and reflecting to us what humans have been doing for centuries. And so what Firefly is doing there is normalizing away those biases. So I think you're right, Martin. Yeah, this is you know just, just another development in the long march of you know, new tools and automation in every field. But there are some things we need to be careful about that we need to get right to make sure this is, you know, human-centric and really serves us well. So we, we tried it on the podcast with ChatGPT. So we fed one of our podcasts into Microsoft's transcript, and it transcribed the podcast, and we threw the podcast transcription into ChatGPT and told it to summarize it. And it did a really good job. It wrote the show notes for the podcast. Yeah. So things like that, I can see, are like, they're super useful uses because that cuts down what would have been an hour's work for someone into literally seconds. Yes. Yeah. But that feels quite a safe application rather than cutting it loose going, hey, go talk to our customers and make decisions for them. Yes, exactly. But but when it did that, you did look it over to make sure that it was okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Before we publishing, it, but it. you can even tell, yeah. you can tell it write it in the Forrester style, and it will go and look at how we write because we have certain style guides, and and it does a good job of that kind of thing. I think. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and you can even tell it, you know, take that second paragraph and turn it from passive voice to active voice and move the right. last paragraph to the beginning, you know. So you can give it editing direction and it will follow like a very, you know, efficient assistant in a way. And that's and that's that's super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're if, if you're a CX pro listening to this and you're thinking like where do we apply it? Where, what would you recommend? Where where should people start thinking about how to use these kind of tools? Well, first of all, I'm going to say that it's very important to try them yourself because I'm going to make some recommendations. But, you know, as I said last year when we were talking about the metaverse and extended reality, don't trust what anyone says, including Forrester, without actually trying and experimenting yourself. You need to get a feel, a gut feel for how these things work. You know, I mentioned a few very specific applications around synthetic data, uh, design, chatbot flows, call summarization, etc. But one of the most important things to do is to look at the applications of generative AI and understand that it is not searching the content. It is just completing. It is producing what probably would come next. And that means you need to be very skeptical of what is in the content. Uh, maybe not, maybe I shouldn't say skeptical, but think critically about what is in the content that was used for the training. As a CX professional, you are the advocate for the end user for the customer. You are the one who stands between the customer having a positive experience and one of your colleagues accidentally, not maliciously, but accidentally doing something that really damages the experience. That is your job. And that means that you really have a responsibility to look at how these technologies are being used and when uh, for example, the content that is used to train them is uh, contains bias or just inaccuracies relative to the sample, um, the, the, the audience that you're serving. And make sure that the experience that's being delivered is aligned with what users' mental models are. There's something very interesting I saw recently. It was an article in the New York Times that interviewed various users about their experiences with generative AI. One dad said that he uses it to get advice on parenting his teens which was interesting. <laughs> Previously, he had relied on a men's group he's a part of and some books on parenting, but he had been asking ChatGPT advice on parenting. And then, this is what really got me. He said, what's great about it is that it is based on data, not emotion, hmm. which is completely wrong because what it is based on is a bunch of content produced by humans, which is full of emotion. If you look at the web, there's emotion in all the content that's out there. It's mutually contradicting each other. But his idea, his mental model, which UX professionals have to think about all the time in designing experiences, his mental model was that because it's a computer, it's somehow objective and analytical and devoid of emotion and accurate and all these adjectives that, in fact, have nothing to do with what gender of AI really is. So this goes back to the issue of not deceiving your users, making sure you're clear that they're dealing with a bot, but also making sure it's clear what that bot's capabilities are. That when they're using generative AI, you're not interacting with something that is you know, analytical and data-based and devoid of emotion. On the contrary, it's aspiring to be more human-like, which means there are great qualities to it, but those are not among them. Yeah, and I like how we've woven into this the inspiration and the care necessary to adopt generative AI and the hope that's tied into it as well. So I feel I feel a lot smarter on this. Do you feel smarter, Martin? I do, yeah. I think that I love the inspiration piece, being able to say, hey, a blank canvas, inspire me, or the connectivity between, like, help me design something, rather than just throw 
you know, assume it can do everything. It's help me do the thing and, and allow me to use my judgment. Yeah. And that point I think David made about the fact that there is emotion in this. I'd never thought about it in that way. I think I'd have heard on the side, yeah. of, it's, a, it's a computer. It must be data-driven, but it's, it's sucking all of its knowledge from the things we put out there. That's something to remember. Yes. Yeah. We're and always I, going to put emotion as a layer on anything we do. Exactly. And that and that's not necessarily a problem. It can be a problem in some circumstances. In other circumstances, it's actually a huge asset that emotion is woven in. And we just have to be aware of that and where that value is a, is appropriate. And I think, you know, another thing that is not very widely understood that I think is really valuable to, to understand about the way gender VI works is that, you know, I kind of oversimplified a little bit when I was defining it, talking about, you know, the most probable completion. In other words, if I say, you know, the grass on the other side of the fence is always, and I pause, you know the next word is greener because that's, you've just heard that many times. So that's essentially what it's doing, right? It's completing, but in a much more sophisticated way. But the truth is, there's actually a parameter uh, in these models that's called temperature. And by modifying that parameter, you can make the model select not the most probable next word, but the second most probable word, next word, or the third most probable. In other words, make it complete the sentence with something that is pretty probable, but not the most. So what happens? What that, what that means is that it's going to feel less predictable, less just deterministic, a little bit more unpredictable, and a little bit more creative. Now, if you push it too far and you increase that parameter too much, then it feels a little crazy, a little nuts, because it's totally unpredictable. It seems unrelated. Now, what is that? I think, arguably, that is a form of creativity. That's what we try to do in brainstorming sessions and ideation sessions where people, you know, humans engage in icebreaker exercises to get their creative juices flowing, to make connections between distant things. And that's essentially what we're doing with the, uh, the temperature parameter in these models. And that's in, anyone can go play with that, by the way, in the OpenAI website. It's not ChatGPT, just look for what's called OpenAI Playground. And you can mess around with that temperature parameter. It's just a slider and see how it generates different outputs. And it really gives you, I think, an insight into creativity and predictability and the relation between them. That's a really interesting thought that tell me the less obvious thing. Tell me what Jack Kerouac would have written. Yeah. <laughs> tell me what Nirvana would have done yes, at this point. Right. And like just bring bring some wild creativity that I can't really, maybe I can, but you know, it's outside of my sphere of Yes, and it's funny you mentioned Jack Kerouac. I, I was actually speaking of this with uh, about this with someone the other day about the temperature parameter, and uh, his response was, "Yes, he calls the temperature parameter the psychedelic parameter, uh, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> uh, because that's essentially kind of what it's doing, making very unexpected connections." Well, I'm going to go and put some Hawkwind on. I don't know about you, Angelina. Yeah. So thank you, David. As Angelina said, I think you've made us both smarter. I hope you've made our listeners smarter. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. I think this is really exciting. And, you know, Forrester is very bullish about the potential for gender of AI. At the same time, we recognize that we need people who are really customer obsessed and customer centric to be leading these efforts and making sure that gender of AI leads us to positive outcomes, not negative outcomes. And we're confident we can get there. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forrester.com. Message us on Twitter at cx underscore cast. And as always, you can find us at www.thecxcast.com. 
or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights. Thank you.